Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome to This is the Place, a podcast channel from The Common magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. Next, we'll be talking to Elizabeth Jaquette about several stories she translated from Arabic for the spring issue of The Common. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Elizabeth Jaquette is a translator from Arabic and executive director of the American Literary Translators Association. Her work is a finalist for the National Book Award for Translated Literature and TA First Translation Prize, among others. She has an MA from Columbia University, a BA from Swarthmore College, and was a CASA Fellow at the American University in Cairo. Elizabeth Jaquette, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Emily. No problem. I wonder if you could begin by describing where you're living now, where you're calling from, so we have a sense of place for this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm calling in from Tucson, Arizona, um, where the weather has been incredibly hot all all summer long. We've just finally entered, I think, the first day of this cold snap. Um, I'm looking at the Catalina Mountains to the north of me, which have just received their first little dusting of snow. Um, but down here, we're at about 2,000 feet um, in the in the Sonoran Desert, and uh, here we're you know we're just feeling the the first start of, of fog. Looking out at the the mesquite tree in front of me, and there's a little broad-billed hummingbird zipping around. So you're you're getting them. Yeah, I'm calling in with with scenes in the background of the Sonoran Desert. That's beautiful. I love I love the hummingbirds flitting around. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for setting the scene for us. Uh, so you've translated many pieces for the common over the years, but most recently you translated four stories from the Arabic for a portfolio of short fiction from Sudan, which appeared in our spring issue. I'd love to have you read two paragraphs from the opening of one of those stories and then describe what the piece is about for our listeners who may not have read it yet. Great. Well, I'll be reading from a story called The Creator, by Abdelghani Karamala, um, and it starts like this. Goal, nice goal. That's what my mother calls from where she sits on her low stool, which seems to long for the earth of my father's grave when she sees me kick an onion between two of the legs supporting the large earthen water jar. My vegetable bounces off one leg and lands in the smoke pit, crying hot tears from the wounds she sustained when she struck the sharp leg. The smoke pit is under my grandmother's wooden bed, so I bend down to retrieve my vegetable, but when I see that the ground under her bed is wet with water dripping from the jug, I immediately forget what I was looking for. I love mud, and so donkeys, sheep, lions, elephants, and chickens emerge from the mud thanks to my fingertips, and then I take my new flock to graze in the courtyard where they all eat grass, and even the lion's stomach is fine with it. The two pebbles I use for his sad and happy eyes are like lovely girls' eyes in my country. The elephant is smaller than the goat. It wasn't born, doesn't reproduce, and won't die, just like the goat, and like me, I think, and the matches make for straight tusks. My mother is looking at me with a lot of love, not because I'm little and without a father, but because I'm ugly and skinny and poor, and my mother thinks this trinity will crucify me on sturdy beams before the age of thirty. But she doesn't notice that the lion I've made is like an officer in plain clothes, that its mouth looks as meek as the beak of a bird, as if Christ had come down into my fingertips, then out through my hands. Don't worry about him, my grandmother tells my mother. He's been watching water drip from the jug for four hours, perfectly happy. 
Great. And would you describe what the piece is about for our listeners who may not have read it yet? Yeah. So um, this piece is from the perspective of a, a young boy. Um, it's, it's a favorite of mine just because you enter this imaginary world of, of his and uh, one thing morphs to the into the next and you kind of follow him throughout all these little games he's playing and his um, what he's imagining. You can see him, you know, shake these these little animals out of clay and and mud and then go play with them and then later on he makes um uh, another little clay clay creature that is uh that he names and then he kind of imagines a lifetime with her and then things don't work out and so he smashes (laughs) smashes this little clay clay creature um but it's really just the yeah, a, a short story from the perspective of this little boy and his imagination in his mother and grandmother's house. Yeah, there's so many great lines just in that opening that you read. I love it. Um, thank you for reading that for us. Can you tell us a bit about the process of translating this story or perhaps the other stories that you also translated for the issue? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, as you know, as a translator, sometimes you work on projects that you find and fall in love with and pitch. Um, and other times you're commissioned to work. Um, and I always, I always really love working with Hisham Bustani, who's the uh, Arabic fiction editor for the common, um, because he selects stories and sends them to me and they're always, uh, yeah, they're always intriguing. They're always different from things that I would find on my own. Um, and it's also quite unusual, uh, as a translator to get to work with an editor who speaks, you know, and writes it is a writer in both the source language and the target language. So in this case, both in Arabic and in English, um, it's, uh, you know, most of the time working as a translator, you know, you're, you have to be the expert on all the nuances in the original. Um, and then your English editor will help you turn it into incredible English prose or poetry. Um, but, uh, for for this issue and for previous issues, uh, it's always a close uh, a process of close collaboration between between Hisham and and myself um, and Jen Acker, uh, the, the editor in English. Um, you know, really looking at what the Arabic does uh, at a linguistic level and how it does it. And I think I have um, I have great memories of the very first comments that Hisham gave gave to me on. Uh, I think the first, yeah, the first piece piece um, that I translated for the Commons several years ago from Jordan, I believe. And the last line, he gave me some comments that was like, you know, there's there's more of a sense of warmth in these lines in the Arabic. Can we find some English words that express that? It was just the most nuanced feedback I'd ever gotten from somebody who, you know, really had an emotive response to the Arabic in addition to kind of a purely meaning or... Yeah, uh, yeah, an understanding of what the meaning was. That's so interesting to hear. Um, yeah, I could, I can understand that that it being a little more collaborative would, would feel really, really nice and supported in in the efforts of translating. Absolutely, and for these pieces, we went back and forth a couple times. You know, sometimes he would say, "Oh, you know, you know, the, I don't think this line is quite right," and I would propose a solution, and he would say, mm, "That's also not quite right," and mm-hmm. we come back, we try something else. But um, yeah, it's you know, so much of a work of a translator or writer is solitary, and so it's always a real pleasure to get to find solutions together. Mm-hmm. 
That's great. Um, and I should probably just say for, for our listeners who might not know that The Common publishes a portfolio of Arabic fiction and translation every spring um, from a different country. Um, so we've done Jordan, Syria, and Sudan, and I believe our next one is going to be Morocco. So oh, exciting. Um, yeah, it's, it's always so fascinating to see what, what Hisham is going to bring our way. Um, Hisham Bustani, our, our Arabic fiction editor. Um, I would love to hear how you came to, to learning Arabic and to translation, like what, what that journey was for you and, and how you were sort of drawn to translating Arabic. Yeah. Um, so I moved to Cairo, Egypt, right after I finished my undergrad studies at Swarthmore, um, in part because I'd graduated with a liberal arts degree and wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. But my, a very close friend of mine had grown up in Cairo, and then she'd gone on to teach abroad in Morocco for a year or two after she graduated. And I'd gone to visit her and um, had been looking to live abroad. You know, it, it was important to me personally to live outside the United States for a period of time. And so um, I kind of followed in her footsteps and applied for teaching jobs around the world and ended up taking one in Cairo. So moved to Cairo without having visited before, without any knowledge of Arabic, uh, and certainly look back and realize how... <laughs> young and naive. <laughs> um, I, you know, how I really, really just knew nothing. Um, and also told myself like, okay, you know, if I'm really having a hard time living abroad, if I really am homesick, if I miss my family, I'll come back by Christmas. Uh, and I ended up staying for five years. Um, wow. I made a lot of really good friends was also in Cairo at a really exciting time politically and socially. I was there throughout the 2011 revolution, mm -hmm. the Arab Spring. And then the first democratic election, and then the coup a few years later. So, um, well, it was kind of chance that brought me there. It, it was just a really engaging and formative time to have lived there. Um, but while I was living in Cairo, I started studying Arabic um, first. Uh, so one thing that is interesting about Arabic is that it's a diglossic language, which means that there's one form which is the spoken vernacular and another form, which is the like formal written Arabic. So the former is, you know, everything you would hear, you know, the way you speak to your family, um, you know, what you hear when you turn on the television and are watching a sitcom. And the latter modern standard Arabic is what the president, you know, when the president reads a speech that's in modern standard Arabic, when you pick up, a novel, when you read the newspaper, that's all in um, a different form of the language. Um, so I started off just learning the former, the spoken Arabic of, of Cairo, because I really just was interested in, you know, speaking, you know, speaking to people around me in Arabic. Um, and then only later did I start learning the written Arabic, which is kind of the opposite from the way most Americans or foreigners end up studying Arabic. Most people learn the foreign, like the formal version first and then and then move somewhere. But I kind of had a backwards experience of learning Arabic. Um, but while I was learning Arabic, I also ran a, you know, living there with, uh, living there for several years, um, just formed a book club because I missed reading and discussing books and fiction. Mm -hmm. um, so I ran the Cairo book club for three years or so. And it ended up being a book club about translation because it was a bilingual book club. And so we read books that had been translated from Arabic to English and people could choose whether they wanted to read them in Arabic or in English. And so each time we'd have some people read the Arabic and some people would, would have read the English. Um, 
both Egyptian friends and um, you know American and British and European friends came. And even though it wasn't intentionally a book club about translation, we would always end up comparing the different reading experiences across languages. And so that I think really opened my eyes to what what the effect, you know, what the reader's experience of a translation was and maybe really interesting about what the process of translation might be to, to take a whole, you know, experience of a book from one language to another. Um, so at the very end of my time in Cairo, I kind of wanted to try my hand, see if my Arabic was good enough and if I enjoyed translation at all. And it turns out I like it quite a lot. <laughs> I really do love, um, yeah, just getting to play with language on the the minute level of a sentence and of a word um, without being responsible for the big picture creative decisions. I'll leave those to the writers and poets out there. <laughs> Actually, I love that idea because it's true. Sometimes I feel like like language and the sentence level is where the fun is really at <laughs> with writing. <laughs> Absolutely. I like the idea of not having to worry about the big picture stuff. Absolutely. And I never have to worry. Like I can worry about whether my translation is you know, whether I've had enough drafts that it is done, but I never have to worry about like, oh, should I change? You mm-hmm. know, what about this character? Do we need more development here? You know, is this where I want to end the story? Maybe I need to switch around these parts. I don't have to worry about those decisions. But I certainly appreciate them as a reader. But um, mm-hmm. I think that, yeah, the fun I enjoy, like like this character and the creator in the story who's playing around with the clay, like on a very minute level. I feel like that's what I get to do as a translator. That's great. Uh, so as you know, The Common publishes writing with a modern sense of place. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what it's like to translate setting. Like, is, I, I wonder if it's a translator's job to help Western audiences understand settings that might be very, very unfamiliar to them. Or is it more important to just stick to the text, stick to the author's original intentions? Yeah, that's a great question. Um yeah, I mean, one thing that's particular about being a translator from Arabic is that it's a language spoken across an entire region and across many countries um, and many different settings. And so, you know, I spent a long time in Cairo. So when I'm translating Egyptian literature, I have a, you know, really real lived experience sense of place in many cases, especially if it's a story or a novel set in Cairo. Um, oftentimes I can, you know, I'll be like, oh, I, I know that street corner or I can, you know, yeah, I know, I know what happens at the end. I know what's at the end of this, you know, this intersection, um, or will, you know, certain colloquial phrases will resonate in a way that, you know, that makes me think, oh, I remember when so-and-so said that to me. Um, but since, you know, I translating from Arabic, I also translate, um, work by authors from countries that I have never, you know, either visited only briefly or I've never been to, as is the case with Sudan. Um, so certainly with those authors and those stories, it, it takes a lot more research. Um, and that can take a number of different forms. That can be either, you know, asking asking the author directly, you know, what is what is what is this? You know, what does this mean to you? Um Sometimes it's asking other authors I've worked with for a favor to, you know, to kind of weigh in on some cultural context that I might not be familiar with. And sometimes it's a Google search <laughs> for this story in particular. There were a number of um, of words in Sudanese Arabic that I just didn't know. Um, I think the words for this low stool that you see in the first paragraph here, um, the large earthen water jar is 
um, as I've learned, something quite common in Sudan. Sudan, um, like a place to yeah, with the, this large <laughs> jar made of clay that keeps water cool. Um, and you know, sometimes we'll be in people's homes. Other times, there's you know versions out in public that you can kind of walk by on the street and take a take a drink of water from. Um, the grandmother's low wooden bed. Um, so these were like very local words that, as you can see in the English, I ended up having more descriptive words. Um, but uh, I, I, I do think that it's a translator's job to kind of, you know, as always, follow the author with what you can best surmise their intention is. I think that if the story is really rooted in a particular place and that setting is really important to the narrative that they're spinning and, and what's going on. And, you know, if that, if that is a central character in the story, if the place itself is a central character, then I think it's the translator needs to pay more attention to that and work a bit harder to recreate that with maybe some glosses or some added information um, embedded in the text for an English reader. But that's not always, you know, that's not always what uh, an author is doing. Sometimes they're less interested in conveying a sense of place and more interested in conveying, you know, some, you know, yeah. So, you know, sometimes there's, there's other things that are important to them. Um, mm-hmm. And that's the case. I think it's less important to try to, for the translator to try to recreate something in the reader's mind. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I had not thought about how different Arabic would be from different countries. And because you're working with the common, you're always going to be asked to translate from different countries that you may not have translated from before. Right. That's interesting. So when I was rereading these stories uh, for this interview, I had forgotten just how short they are. They're these isolated glimpses of whole lives or large systemic problems, but they're just like two or three pages. And several of them also tell tell their stories through fragments, really brief, uh, totally separate narrative sections. And I think that this is true for, for much of the Arabic fiction we publish, not just the stories from Sudan. And I know you're certainly more of an expert on this on me than me. So I wonder what you can tell us about structure and form in Arabic that you've encountered in the fiction. Absolutely. I, I think you're... I think you're right that um, short stories in Arabic tend to be more experimental than short stories in English. Um, they, uh, yeah, there's also a genre in Arabic of the al-qasa, al-qasira jiddan, so the very short story, um, <laughs> which is its own, uh, yeah, has its own history um, and, and is a form unto itself that I think you know, like maybe you could think of some of Lydia Davis's short stories, for example, for, for that kind of length. Um, but uh, they're, you know, they're, they're certainly not a common form we, we see in English. Um, so I think there's a lot, there, you know, there's some like joy and playfulness in, in, in sharing a story that is maybe only a few sentences long or a paragraph long or a page long, um, which certainly goes against expectations of, you know, what of, you know, in English, what we expect to get out of a short story. Um, and, you know, aside from length, I think it's also true that short stories in Arabic have, don't have to live with the expectations of um, narrative arc or of mm-hmm. revelation or of change, you know, some kind of change that happens to, to the narrator, to the main character in a way that I think it's more common in English short stories. Um 
There's another Sudanese author who I've translated an entire collection by Rania Matmoon. Um, that collection is 13 Months of Sunrise. It's published by by um, by Comma Press in the UK. Um, and her short stories is you know similar. You know, similar to these are, you know, sometimes they can be, I think there's one that's seven lines. It's like seven days wow. of love and it's seven lines and that is it. Um, and others are just a page long and others are a few pages long. And what I think that was doing a whole collection really gave me an opportunity to think about how short stories in Arabic are different. And they're, I think they can often be satisfy, satisfying as just moments as opposed to, um, yeah, you get a, you can get a slice of a moment or a slice of someone's life in a way that um, can just be about that thing existing and feeling that mood, as opposed to short stories in English where you might expect you know something to happen or some kind of change to happen or some you know there to be a revelation at the end. Yeah, I do. I do find that they. I, I'm a big fan of flash fiction, and I feel like they satisfy a certain certain itch that flash scratches, which is sort of uh, you know. Sometimes you can be looking for like surprise or sensation or impression rather than, than yeah, narrative arc or, or the whole picture. Right, right. So one of the stories you translated is called The Opening Ceremony by Bushra Elfadel. And it's, it's very sharp satire. It's critical of a government that creates a lot of pomp and ceremony but makes no real improvement in the lives of its people. And this certainly isn't the first Arabic story we've published that takes a satirical look at the people in power. Do you find this kind of humor and absurdity often in Arabic fiction? And, and what's it like to, to translate that kind of humor? Yeah. Um, you know, I will say, so we are speaking just a few days after the 2020 election has been called. Um, and it is, it is different translating political satire for English readers and particularly Americans now than it was when I first started as an Arabic translator. The, <laughs> Um, the first book I really, the first work of literature I translated ever is The Q by Basma Abdelaziz, which was kind of like, uh, 1984 meets the Arab Spring, but with a bit more of a satirical bent on it. And looking back at some of the conversations I had with my editors into English then, um, I had to do some explaining like, yeah, well, I know that the leader has, you know, said that x y and z happens but everybody knows in this context that that's just a lie and so we kind of had to work to build in okay well the leader claimed that x y and z or Mm -hmm. um uh you know like of course like the ministry has come out with a statement but like clearly that's false because everything else in the story is going against it and so um it was interesting to have those conversations with the English editor and really having to to draw out um, the discrepancy between lived reality and whatever the government or a ministry or a you know state newspaper was saying, and really kind of having to underline that in the way that it was contextualized in English. Um, or, for example, I know there was another line in that book where um, you know the government newspapers were calling protesters like. They were just, you know, basically just like calling them a bunch of names um, mm-hmm. uh, and kind of, you know, really had to work with the editor to get an American audience to imagine what would it be like if the government called, pro, you know, undermined protesters by calling, you know, by claiming mm-hmm. that they were X, Y, and Z. And now who course, could imagine that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I don't think I have to do that kind of work as a translator anymore after 
the past four years in the United States, um, where that kind of rhetoric, you know, is something that we've seen on a national level here in the U.S. Um, I think I've deviated a bit from where your question began, though. Um, can you remind me again where you started with Sure. I was, I was just wondering if, if you feel like this is like very common in Arabic literature to have a sort of like humorous satire and absurdity and, and just if it's hard to translate the humor, which I think, I think you, you have touched on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, it's, um, I, I do think that um, Arabic writers who are often, yeah, who have a longer history, I think, than, than English writers or writers in English of being um persecuted by their governments or by, you know, having part of their, yeah, part of, what am I trying to say here? Um, yeah, I think, I, you know, writers in Arabic have a longer tradition and history of writing against the government. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that, uh, yeah, it's certainly this kind of like satire against, um, yeah, against those in power is more, is more common, does have a greater history to it. I find it, I find it a lot of fun to translate yeah, absolutely. We've had we've had some great stories over the years. I'm thinking of a story which I think maybe it was in issue 15 that was like a, a satire of the government through the eyes of Cinderella. Mm, oh, <laughs> Just, how great! Yeah, I'll fascinating. Go back to that one. <laughs> Uh, speaking of issue 15, um, several years ago at the issue 15 launch party, you said something that I always think about when I'm reading any of the Arabic stories we publish. Uh, you were talking about the balance between being faithful to the original text and also making it accessible to a Western audience who might balk at certain things, which I think of as being, um, for me, a bit more poetic than we're used to in American prose. Uh, and the example you mentioned was using um, a bunch of metaphors in a row, which I guess is fairly common for, for a lot of Arabic writers. So could you tell us a little bit more about that side of translation? Yeah, of course. Um, I, yeah, it's uh, it's certainly a balance between, I guess, you know, it's kind of one of those like dichot- false dichotomies in translation of like, are you more faithful to the original text or are you more faithful to this English reader? And mm-hmm. um, I think more and more translators in translation circles were questioning, you know, who who is this quote unquote English reader, um, <laughs> you know, it's just it's a, an imaginary monolith um uh but there you know there certainly are things that you know there's you know arabic arabic um arabic literature has you know a different stylistic breadth and history that readers are accustomed to and more therefore more comfortable with that um is different from from english prose i'm saying prose here because i work mostly in prose um I think one thing that came up in this issue in particular, working with Kisham, is there are a couple stories where the tense shifts around a lot, which is unmarked in the Arabic. I think it can, you know, it, you know, you shift from present tense to past tense and then back to present again. And sometimes in the course of a paragraph, or maybe even a sentence. And it, it you know, in speaking with Hisham through the editing process, he illustrated that, you know, that's something that adds to this, you know, is a stylistic choice by the author. It's not a mistake. And it kind of adds to this, um, maybe like dream equality or to this, uh, you know, like you're neither here nor there element of the story. Um, whereas certainly my first, first instinct as a translator and as a, translator with my editor hat on too is like oh we need to straighten this out um 
And, you know, this all needs to be in one tense and, uh, you know, because those are more set expectations of, of English prose. Um, and, you know, shifting tense all throughout a story reads like a mistake in English as opposed mm-hmm. to a stylistic choice. Um, and I think we did, we did keep some of that here. We might have toned it down a little bit in that particular story. I feel like that is, you know, that's kind of like the... Um, the moderating choice of the translator of like, okay, I want, I want English readers to experience something new and to have their conceptions of what a story can do or how a story should be told stretched um, by an encounter with translated fiction, but we might not be able to plunge them into the deep end right away. And so we might need to like modulate what is going on in the Arabic. Um, that's talking about style, uh, but it's certainly also true with um, kind of more, you know, things about content. Um, uh, as it, you know, sometimes I'll put in in glosses, stealth glosses. Um, so uh, you know, little bits of information that might help orient an English reader um, to what to what they're experiencing, like little explanations hidden in the text. Um, but those, I think, can depend on whether the whether, you know, on the author's intent as well. Um, I just worked recently with an author who is, you know, felt very strongly that if an English reader wants to know, you know, why this license plate is, is this color, like they can go look it up. Um, so it's certainly those, those decisions as a translator can, yeah, differ depending on which author I'm working with and their own expectations and intentions for a text and how it travels. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. Um, I do think what you're saying about uh, like giving English reading audiences the the experience of reading something that might be a little outside of their comfort zone is, but easing them into it a little bit is a, a really helpful aspect of the the portfolios. Because I sort of hope, like as I was re- rereading this portfolio of Sudanese literature. I could see that reading just one story, I might feel a little bit disoriented or, or jarred by how different it was. But when you read them all together, you get this sense of a very different style that is not your own, but is definitely an intentional choice, you know, not, not a mistake, as you were saying. Absolutely. And that's one thing that I really appreciate about the portfolios that the Come Up puts together is that, you know, clearly they're about a sense of place, but that doesn't, I think it's easy to, you know, think of translation as a way to be an armchair traveler. And, you know, when you think about stories from elsewhere, you think about learning about a different place and, and that learning or that experience, I should say, not learning in, in the commons portfolios comes through this mosaic approach of different styles. Like style is just as important in the pieces that you choose and you feature as is kind of a descriptor of it, of a certain place. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. So you're the executive director of the American Literary Translators Association, and I know that The Common has found some great translators and translations to publish through the conference that Alta runs. Um, Can you tell our listeners more about Alta and maybe what the organization does and why that work is important? Absolutely. Um, So Alta is a um, 43-year-old organization that was founded at the University of Texas in Dallas. and uh, has, you know, w- was based there for many years. And then about five, six years ago, became an independent nonprofit. Um, and really, Alta's work is to support literary translators. That's translators working in all different genres, prose, poetry, literary nonfiction, drama, uh, graphic novels, working from all languages into English. And 
the the main ways we do that are through translation awards, um, through our annual conference, and through an emerging translator mentorship program. So I will give a plug to the to the last on that list here. Um, it's a the emerging translator mentorship program is a great program that pairs an, an emerging translator, someone who's published one full length work or fewer or no full length work full-length works yet, um, with an experienced translator, and they work together over the course of nine months um, very, very closely. So it's a chance for someone who was looking to get into translation to walk side by side with uh, an experienced translator, um, someone who will help answer questions like, who publishes translations? Pitch to the common, <laughs> et cetera. Um, who will help edit their text? Who will help, um, you know, help them with any questions about the source language? Um, and those applications are open through the end of November. So if you are a translator and you're listening, mm-hmm. consider applying. It's a really, really great program. Um, and our, our uh, mentees who have gone through it have done some great work. Um, uh, but then the biggest thing that Alta does is an annual conference which in non-pandemic years is a great, is just a celebration of, of translation and of, of the people who make it possible, translators, readers, editors. It's about, you know, usually around almost 500 people who gather in person for three days of panels and workshops and readings and all sorts of special events. We've had translation trivia um, we've had staged readings. We've had, uh, last year we did something cold beer, cold readings, which was kind of like an open mic for theater in translation. Um, so it's a lot of fun. It's, uh, it's, um, <laughs> many academics who are members of Alta who say, oh, this is my favorite conference because it's not, it's not like an academic conference. Um, it's just really more of a three day celebration of, of translation and, uh, an opportunity to, if you're a translator or you're interested in translation, thinking about the kinds of things we've talked about in this podcast through your work or by yourself, it's a way to think collectively with other people. Um, this year, our conference was online. And so there are a number of um, panels and sessions and readings that are free and available to the public. So maybe we can drop a link in the podcast for that. Um or you can go to uh, crowdcast.io slash literary translators and look through for some some of the free programming there. Um, yeah, but it, you know, in the United States, Alta is one of the very, very few organizations that is solely dedicated to translators. Um, and so uh, that, you know, it's a special role to fill here in the United States to be both advocates of the art of translation and also um, be thinking about how we can support translators at every stage of their career. That's, that's great. I'm glad you plugged the free programming and also the mentorship program. That sounds like a great opportunity. I, I think that we published translations, which um, Jennifer, our, our editor in chief, found by doing a sort of speed dating thing. That's true. Thing That's true. Between, I should talk between, about that. <laughs> yeah, between editors and, and translators. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, yeah. So um, one thing that we used to do in person, and this year we did virtually, is this kind of speed dating between editors and translators, where um, uh, editors you know, generously offer their time to meet with translators and then translators sign, sign up for five minute slots and they get five minutes to pitch their work. So if you think about like a, I guess a five minute elevator ride would be a long elevator ride, but an elevator, <laughs> elevator pitch plus right. um, they pitch some, you know, some piece of work that they're working on. And it's been a, we've had really fantastic feedback from both editors and translators. A lot of, you know, stories and poems and novels have found, great homes at journals like the common and, and others. Um, and some, some books have also come out of, uh, 
out of these pitch sessions, but it's a great way for editors to get to say, you know, to say, you know, here's, here's what our journal is about. Here's what makes us unique. Here are the specific kinds of things we are looking for. Here's what we do. And for translators to, to, especially those who don't live in, you know, publishing hubs like New York city to Mm -hmm. get to connect with editors from all over. Yeah. I think we really appreciate it as a way to, to really, um, be intentional about, about pursuing translation work in, in our magazine. Um, cause I think if you, if you wait for translations to come through the submission pile that, you know, they can be few and far between. So it, it's nice to sort of, um, yeah, put our priorities w- where they matter and, and go to these conferences mm-hmm. and make sure that we're getting ourselves in front of translators and, and that That's work. Great. That's great. Uh, so in other news, a recent translation of yours is a finalist for the 2020 national book award for translated literature. So huge congrats on that. Thank Very you. prestigious. Um, can you tell us more about that book? Yeah, that book is um, Minor Detail by Adenea Shibley. Um, and it is probably the work I am most proud to have translated. It was a huge challenge. It's a short book. It's just about 100 pages. Um, but uh, Adenea worked on it for 12 years wow. as a writer. And so this is clearly, uh, you know, there's some authors I work with who work very quickly and, you know, I'll, I'll come back to them with a question, you know, why did you, why does the character smile at this point? Oh, I don't know. She just does. Um, and, uh, uh, this book was the opposite of that. Um, every, you know, every sentence, every word was very, very intentional and something that she had thought about and crafted over the course of a dozen years. Um, of course, as a translator, you get commissioned to translate something. So you don't have the luxury of saying, oh, I also would like 12 years to work on this translation. Mm-hmm. Um, I might have gone a bit mad if I worked on it for 12 years. I worked on it for about one year. Um, but uh, so the, the the book comes in two parts. Um, the first part is set in 1948 in the Negev Desert, um, where a um, group of soldiers, of Israeli soldiers in the recently founded nation of Israel, um, finds a, they're kind of like on patrol and they, um, you know, patrolling the desert looking for infiltrators and they find a group of Bedouin. They kill all of them except for a um, young girl. And then uh, the, the, the situation unfolds. It's kind of like a true crime Um I don't really want to say what happens because I want to turn it up. But uh, yeah, you know, there's a crime that's committed. Um, And then part two, you know, I'll I'll say part one is told in this really distanced tone. You're kind of over the shoulder of the main officer, main perpetrator, Mm -hmm. uh, but you have no insight into his mind. He's repeatedly washing himself. You see him kind of repeat these actions methodically. Um, He gets bitten by a spider and is kind of then obsessed with squashing all the bugs in his hut and, you know, every evening before going to bed, hunts through his hut to, to find and squash any bugs and is washing this wound in this obsessive kind of way. And so you're right there watching this happen, but you have no insight into his, um, into his mental state. And then that section ends, you're transported decades into the future, probably early 2000s, although we don't know the exact time. And the narrator of part two is a woman who has a completely opposite narrative voice. Um, It's written in the first person and 
with these long run-on sentences, and you're kind of right in her head as she learns about this incident, about this crime, and is struck by the minor detail that it happened 25 years before the day she was born and feels this connection and just feels like, I have to know what happened. I have to learn the girl, you know, the girl's side of the story mm-hmm. um, and goes on this quest through modern day Palestine, crossing borders, um, going through checkpoints, kind of filled, you know, suffused with anxiety uh, as she's, you know, doing things that would put, you know, put her life at risk in, in modern day Palestine to try to find out the girl's side of the story and what happened to her. Um, and to kind of like go back to the places where or to find the place where this crime happened. Um, so it was, it's, a uh, it's an incredible book. I highly recommend mm-hmm. it. Um, the, just the, the kind of shock of going from one narrative voice to another, the way the two parts play against each other, both in terms of narrator and voice. And also what was really special about this book is these echoes between the two parts, as as, uh, Adania Mm -hmm. calls them. Um, These, you know, repeated motifs and images and words that appear in part one and then appear in part two. And kind of give you a sense of, you know, the, the past isn't past. Um, it's it's right there. Oh, that sounds fascinating. I will have to pick up a copy. I, I love <laughs> the idea of, of that that shift not being just a point of view shift, but really like a, a narrative style shift. That sounds wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. And if uh, one last question, uh, you could tell us what you're working on now. What's next for you? Yeah, well, I don't have any big projects lined up. Um, one thing I'm working on is... Uh, a young adult novel, which I haven't, this would be my first young adult novel if it does get picked up. Um, it's called Against the Tide. Uh, it's the, based on a true story of Gaza's first fisher woman. Um, and it's about a young girl who, um, when her young, her older brother is, is killed and then her father is paralyzed, kind of takes up the burden of providing for the family, and decides to become a fisherwoman. And at the age of 16. Um, and so it's about her, you know, it's a, it's a really satisfying young adult story about her kind of discovering her own strength and possibility. Um, so that's a, that's a project that I'm working on now. It's looking for a home. So I'm currently <laughs> pitching that one. Um, but also I'm enjoying translating it while it's, while it's looking for the publisher of its dreams. <laughs> that sounds great. That sounds fascinating. And I should say too, there's a, there's an excerpt of that up on words without borders. I edited a small portfolio of um, Arabic young adult writing um this spring i think in april um so if you're if you're intrigued by that story you can find a, an, a sample of it an excerpt on words Great, yeah borders. we'll have to we'll have to link to that uh we love words without borders that and that sounds like a, a fascinating portfolio it's a good one uh elizabeth thank you so much for joining us it's been so great to talk with you thank you so much for having me emily it's been a joy Listeners, you can read Elizabeth's translations of Arabic stories and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org.